give you thanks for your goodness to us. And we come with thankful hearts to give back to you our tithes and our offerings. Receive these now, Lord, and bless them and the giver for the work that will be accomplished through these means. Lord, we trust that you will accomplish all of your purposes, but you delight to invite us into that process. And so through even the giving of our tithes and our offerings, small as they may be, uh, we pray that you would take and use them for your glory. We commit these now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, and we'll begin in verse 1. This is God's Word. Revelation 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gift that it is, that You reveal Yourself to us through it. We pray now that You would open our eyes by Your Spirit's power, that we might see and understand and increase in our knowledge and faith. Lord, more than that, would You cause us to love You more as a result of Your Word proclaimed today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, chapter 15 is the introduction to the seven bowls. We've been through the seals, we've been through the trumpets, and now we come to the bowls. And here in this introduction is an introductory statement, and then there's this kind of interlude where we see this snapshot into heaven, the song, the singing, the crystal sea, and then we come back to the rest of the introduction. That's the same pattern that we saw at the introduction of the seven seals in chapters 4 and 5. We got that glimpse into the throne room of God. Same thing we saw with the trumpets in chapter 8 where we have the introduction there and the glimpse into heaven. What the book of Revelation continues to do is move us back and forth between images of salvation and judgment, between safety and destruction, between heaven and earth between Christ the conqueror and Satan the deceiver. And this is designed to help those churches to whom this letter was written, those churches in seven, in, uh, seven churches in, in Asia Minor, to help them uh, be encouraged, to have hope. And of course, it's written to us 
as well for the same reason as we face trials. To know and trust that although the world looks as if it's falling apart, God remains in control. That although suffering and persecution come, God will vindicate His people. That although sin brings harm, hurt, and deep pain into our lives, God will make all things new. He will completely heal, and He will wipe away every tear. We long for that day when our faith is made sight, when we no longer have to look through a veil dimly, but we see face to face the reality of our faith, the day that we get to see and experience and know the reality of everything being made new. And the book of Revelation is here for us to know that hope, to be strengthened in that hope, and to be renewed by it. And so whatever it is that weighs us down today, and I know that all of us have stuff in our minds. Some burdens may seem heavier some weeks than others, but we all have things that weigh us down or distract us or cause us to guess and to wonder, is God really at work? Is God really good? This book is here for us in this chapter especially that we might wake and see the hope that is ours because our God does great and amazing deeds. So look in verse 1 at the beginning announcement. We see there that John points us to another sign in heaven. And as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, John talks about seeing stuff quite a bit. Behold, and I saw, there I looked, and it appeared over and over and over. And so this one might just kind of blend in as another one of those statements, but this one is unique. It is a sign in heaven. This is the third time, there's only three times that he uses this phrase, sign in heaven. This is the third and final time that he does so. The first sign in heaven was the image of the woman about to give birth, who represents the people of God throughout the ages, from whom the Messiah came, uh, Revelation 12, 1 and 2. And then immediately following that, he saw another sign in heaven. He saw the dragon, the, the, uh, the, the image that represents Satan. And so now the third sign in heaven is this picture of God's final judgment, the great and amazing deeds of our God. Whatever John saw was amazing. That's how he describes it. And we, you know, he's he's struggling for words to describe to us as readers. And of course, we as readers are struggling to understand what the words convey. And I can guarantee you, we can't fully understand what John experienced in this vision. It was better, it was more amazing, it was greater than what we can think. So that is what he's trying to convey. He says it in the very beginning, and then he attributes it to God's deeds in verse 3, that his deeds are great and amazing. Uh, there's something significant about what's coming. We feel this, this ratcheting up that is happening with the coming bowls. In a sense, when we put these three signs in heaven together, we get kind of an abbreviated and just kind of a summary of the the story of redemption, Uh, a summary really of the book of Revelation, the Cliff's Notes version, if you remember Cliff's Notes. We're not supposed to know what Cliff's Notes are, right? That was kind of cheating, but back at least when I was in high school, if you didn't have time to read the entire book, you got the Cliff's Notes, and they were an abbreviated summary of what the story contained. So what do we see in the three signs? Well, we see God's people, that they are called and protected. That's the image of the woman, that she's called out, that everywhere she flees, she's protected. God's people will be preserved. We see the image of Satan, who wages war against God's people in a vain effort to destroy his work and tarnish 
God's glory. And of course, we see that not only in the book of Revelation, told again and again, but we see that throughout history as well. We see that God has absolute power and brings judgment upon Satan and all who belong to him, so that in the end, God vindicates his people, he saves them to eternal rest, he preserves his name and glory by powerfully defeating sin and death and the evil one. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? The story of redemption. Part of what makes the seven bowls, though, significant is what John says about them here in verse 1. He describes these as the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So there's a signal there. If John had simply said these are the last, we could have assumed that he was speaking of the last of the series of sevens. There are three series, well, there's lots of sevens. We've looked at, we've seen lots of sevens throughout the book of Revelation, but the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, he specifically calls out and names. And so this is the third and final series of those sevens. And so these were the last that were revealed to him. But then he adds, and with them the wrath of God is finished. We've talked about John's approach in writing Revelation, that he's writing through a parallel structure, much like we see in a lot of Hebrew literature. Uh, But I've used the idea of a slinky to maybe better understand. I don't know if this is really helpful, but it is for me, so I'll keep telling you this. You know, the slinky, when you look at it through either end, you see circles that are on top of each other. That's, in a sense, the parallel structure. But when you turn it on its side, you see that the circles are progressing, you know, that's the way the slinky's connected. Not just that they're connected, but there's progression. When you pull it apart, it moves along. And I think that's what we're seeing in the story. Yes, with the seals, he goes from uh, the, the, the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and everything that happens in between and, and, and ends with the final judgment. And then with the trumpets, he goes back and retells that. We're going to see that again with the bowls, but there's something significant about the increasing intensity that's happening, and with the bowls comes the end. So while John's visions happened in order, and he writes that order in the book of Revelation, that's the way he's describing them to us, they're not describing a linear story throughout history, but rather he goes back, and there are bits and pieces that he uh, weaves together. We've seen this clearly through each of the seals and the trumpets. We're going to see this as well in the bowls. And yet, with this increasing intensity, we're told that this is the end of God's judgment. So we're coming to uh, the end. There will be an increase. There will be a ratcheting up uh, against the wicked until the return of Christ. And one of the ways or evidences that we see is God's giving up man to his debased mind that we read about in Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. See, the fruit of man's sinfulness will be a part of God's judgment. It is a part of God's judgment. His turning us loose. Uh, That is, he gives man what his deceitfully wicked heart desires making mankind futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, Romans 1. So no doubt the seven plagues are going to be awful, and there's no question that Satan is going to be at work through all of these things. But my point is is that those who have rejected Christ will become willing participants. They have. We see this already, where people think that they're doing things that they want, and yet they discover in that judgment, pain, suffering, enslavement, 
I mean, if you think of a, of a child who, you know, pitches a fit because they want the green shiny thing on the table to eat that, that you've eaten, and you keep telling the child, no, you, you don't want that green shiny thing, it will hurt you. No, no, you don't want it. But they want it, and they pitch a fit, and you finally give in. Not that any of us would do this. And say, fine, eat it. And they put the jalapeno pepper in their mouth, and they discover that what they wanted so badly was not something they really wanted at all. And that's kind of a silly illustration, but it's the point of God saying, no, no, this is not what you really want, and then God turning us over to our own desires. I've mentioned that uh, for every generation, for the last 2,000 years, that have read the book of Revelation, everyone has probably thought, it's our day, this is the end. This, you know, they, they look around, they see all the things that are happening, this is when the end is coming. And we ask things like, how could it get any worse? How could we stoop any lower? How could there possibly be any more evil? How could we digress any further? And while those are fair questions, I think we need to say at least two things. First, we need to study history. <laughs> we need to look back and remember We need to realize that things could be worse in some ways, that everything is not as bad as it could be in every way. Things have been worse, but we also need not be naive, and we need to understand that things can still get worse. Things can digress further, and the daily news seems to make that point clear to us. Even though we have better access to food, We have access to clean water. We have so many comforts in this life and our own experience in this part of the world. And yet we have this incredibly twisted way of calling evil progress. Perversion we call tolerance. And liars we call experts. We shouldn't think this is as bad as it can get. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, Apart from God's saving grace in our lives, we would do unimaginable things. I'm speaking to us as believers right now. Apart from God's saving grace in our life, we would do unimaginable things. And apart from God's common grace in our world, things would have already reached self-destruction. So God's judgment is coming and it is here. Now let me stop and say this. If when I say things like what I've just said, your immediate thought is to kind of wag your finger and think of all those bad people out there that God has turned loose, that they are digressing further and further and further. That's not the attitude we want to have. If anything, when we see the judgment of God revealed, when we see the turning loose, when we see people falling in sin and enslavement, we need to recognize first and foremost what we have been saved from. That apart from the grace of God, that's where we would go. We also need to recognize that although we are saved, we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. It's still there in our hearts. We still have hearts that struggle, that fight, that war. So if this produces pride in us in any way, that's something we need to repent of. So don't, don't, don't get caught up in this, oh, the bad, bad world out there and we're okay. It's a call for us to examine our own hearts. To guard our own minds against that self-righteousness that can so easily creep up. 
and ensnare us even as believers. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is here. It is evidenced in his giving mankind up to their own ways, and it is coming in the symbols of these plagues and bowls. Now, in verses 2 to 4, we have this interlude where we see this snapshot uh, into heaven. And again, I mentioned it's similar to what we saw in chapters 4 and 5 with that glimpse into the throne room. And then later in chap- before the seals, later in chapter 8, we saw the same thing before the, the trumpets, a vision into the throne room of heaven. John here first describes the crystal sea or the sea of glass as it's called here. Uh, this is something that he saw in chapter 4 in that first vision. This time, however, John sees the people of God standing around it. It says, with the harps of God. They are described as those who have conquered. And we know from Revelation 12.11 that it is the Lamb who has conquered, or it is by the, the blood of the Lamb who has conquered that they have conquered. And what that simply means, it is Jesus who conquered, and we are conquerors by faith in Him. By trusting Him, by looking to Him, we are overcomers. John sees the fire uh, mingled in with the crystal sea. It points to this um, impending doom or coming doom. Uh, In a sense, you almost get a a glimpse of, uh, you know, one of those old um, uh, stoves. You know, when you cranked up the heat, you know, it it started changing colors and turned orange. And we had one, it was an insert, a gas insert, you know, and it changed. Uh, That's kind of the vision that I have here, that the, the, the heat is coming. In light of the final judgment, though, his, his people sing praises for his great and amazing deeds, just like we saw in chapter 11. The song that is described here is the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, if you haven't picked up yet from the reading alone, the point of chapter 15 is to point us back to the story of the Exodus. There's a lot of allusion here to the story of the Exodus. Different portions of Revelation have taken us back to different Old Testament passages, some more directly than others. This is pretty direct. We see several allusions to the story of the Exodus. And here is one, the Song of Moses. This is the song that was recorded in Exodus 15. Except the song that's recorded here doesn't really sound much at all like the Song of Moses. I mean, it has the same object of praise, that is God, but it's not like it's a quote from that. The plagues, if you remember, in the story of the Exodus were sent as a warning. They were a judgment. God said, let me, you know, told Moses, let my people go, and he didn't, so there was a judgment, but it was also a warning that if any time Pharaoh had heeded the call and let his people go, the plagues would have stopped. The judgments would have ceased. The plagues had been sent as a warning of a final judgment that would come. And even the last plague isn't the final judgment. It was the the point at which he finally let them go, but the final judgment was on the heels of that, when the horse and rider were thrown into the sea, when Pharaoh and his armies were finally judged. And so this is clearly pointing us back to the Exodus story by mentioning Moses and his song. The song is also referred to as the Song of the Lamb because, again, we're to think forward to the final Exodus where the people, as the people of God, we are ushered into the true promised land, that the Lamb who conquered and overcame sin and death will take us to that place. And so the song praises God then for who He is and what He has done. And if you look in verse 3, this is what we read this morning, uh, two statements are made about God's actions. Great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. 
And then those two statements are each followed with proclamations of his name. O Lord God Almighty, O King of the nations. Who God is and what he has done, or it's in reverse order, what he has done and who God is. And this is the the continual uh, reminder for us as the readers of Revelation to see that God is, because of who he is and what he has done, he is trustworthy. He's done this. He's continued to do this. He will continue to do this. In verse 4, there's the rhetorical question, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And then the answer given, For you are holy, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So people will see and glorify his name. The saving work of God and his judgments then are two sides of the same coin. He has saved us and he will judge others. But he has saved us by judging Christ in our place. Wasn't God didn't just overlook sin and say, well, well, that's okay for these people. He laid upon Christ the iniquity of us so that Christ took our judgment so that we could be forgiven. But those who would reject Christ, they will receive the same judgment, but they will receive it against their own account. They will face the judgment themselves. In other words, God's judgment pictured here is mankind getting what he deserves. It's not unfair in any way. God's ways are always just. His judgment is always true. And so for us who are trusting in Christ, we have nothing to fear because, again, the judgment of God was laid upon Jesus and we have received mercy. But this is a warning at the same time for those of you who have yet to believe that you do not have to face the judgment that is coming. You can look to Christ in faith and receive forgiveness so that Jesus takes the judgment that you deserve. Don't hear that, that you deserve it, and I don't. <laughs> I realize when you say words, they can be you know, heard out of context. If you were slumbering 30 seconds ago, this is all of us. We all deserve the judgment of God. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. There is none righteous, no, not one. To receive the mercy of Christ is to trust Him, to believe in Him, so that we do not have to face the judgment that we deserve. In verse 5, after the snapshot from the throne room, John returns to this announcement that the angels are coming to pour out these bowls of wrath. And his shift focus, he says, After this I looked, and he sees the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven opened. This is another reference back to the Exodus account. Because here he doesn't call it the temple. In all other uh, stories where he looks into heaven or, or accounts where he looks into heaven, he refers to it as the temple. Here he calls it the tent or the tabernacle. This is the, the, the version of the temple that preceded. It was the mobile version of the temple that, that preceded the building of it. So it takes us back to that Exodus experience. And he says the sanctuary of the tent of witness or of testimony, depending on your translation. So he's pointing specifically to the the testimony or the law of God. And so if you imagine he's seen heaven opened, the tabernacle or the tent opened, and if you go with him in the vision and see what's coming, you move into the Holy of Holies, and what is central there when you come into the Holy Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark, we've seen this in other images in Revelation. Inside the Ark was stored the Ten Commandments, the law of God. So this is where our attention is being taken, to see the law of God. Now, the law has a threefold purpose for us. It shows us God's perfect character, 
shows us who God is and therefore how we don't meet up to that. that thus we need a savior. The law restrains us from evil. It protects us from the power of sin. When we obey it, we are guarded against sin. The law shows us what pleases God, how we can glorify Him. And it's not just that it reveals just His will, that we are to know how to live, but it shows us too that His sovereign will is just and good. That He intends good for us. He has shown us how to live. This is what Micah 6.8 tells us. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown us how to live, that we are to live by faith, Loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. That's how we are to live. And within that is protection, is safety. And yet, even in this, we know that we're going to face difficulties. We know that we're going to face trials and tribulations. He doesn't ignore that. He doesn't, you know, it, it's not, remember the, the, the saying that was so popular, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? So many people were called to faith through that. I think with the best of intentions. But Jesus calls us to come and die. It's a wonderful plan, yes, in the end. It is a wonderful plan. We all have something to look forward to. But in this life, we're called to die, to suffer. And so a lot of people are surprised when they come to faith. And it doesn't mean roses and rainbows and unicorns. We're surprised because we're called to suffer. God hasn't forgotten that either. Think of all the promises that I'm near to the brokenhearted. Or this one in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. God is with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us, even in the heartache of life. But the law of the Lord reveals to us another thing in this particular symbol, and that taking us to the tabernacle, taking us into the ark and seeing there what is on top of the ark but the mercy seat. It was there in the most holy place where the ark is kept that we see the mercy seat. And after giving Moses instructions on how to put the tabernacle together, how to build all of the furnishings for it, he said this to him, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God met with his people and he spoke to them and he showed them mercy through that sacrificial system. It was the mercy seat that was sprinkled with the blood on the Day of Atonement. That blood did not accomplish anything. It's not by the blood of goats and bulls that were saved that sins are atoned for. But it pointed to the one who was to come, the Lamb of God who would die and atone for the sins. It pointed us forward to the cross, that the people would see that one day a Savior would come and do what no animal's blood could do and accomplish the salvation of our souls. It's at the cross that we see steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Out of the sanctuary, John sees then the seven angels coming with the plagues, and they're dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes, around their chests. If you don't remember back to Revelation chapter 1, that's how we saw Jesus described in his dress, that he was coming dressed similarly. In other words, the angels are coming in his duty. They have been sent by him to do his work as judge. Jesus is coming to judge. 
That's the image that's pictured here. This is what Peter explained in his sermon in Acts 10.42. He says, And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And so Jesus is coming to judge. The final part in verses 7 and 8 describe this all-consuming glory of God's judgment. And again, we see this allusion back to the Exodus story. The bowls of wrath here are juxtaposed against the bowls that contain the incense that we saw earlier in Revelation 5, verse 8. Those bowls of incense, the incense portrayed the prayers of the saints. And here they contain the bowl, uh, the bowls contain the wrath of God. What is the connection? Well, the prayers of the saints, although they are many, they were described there as prayers for deliverance, prayers for vindication. And that is specifically what these bowls come in answer to, that God has come to judge those who have persecuted his people. And the bowls now come as an answer to those prayers described as full of the wrath of God, verse 7, who lives forever and ever. The bowls contain God's just judgment against sin. And they are full. And that should bother us. It shouldn't scare us who are believers because we know that we're safe in Christ, but it should shake us to see that our sins are grievous. We live in a time, in a culture, where sins, even as believers, sometimes we act as if they're just minor infractions. That they're really no big deal. They're not as bad as, and we compare it to somebody else or somewhere else. But our sins are against a holy God. So his wrath comes as full. And the reason I point this out for us who are believers is it is because that full bowl of wrath is what fell on Christ. It is what he took in our place. It fell on him at the cross. But this is, this is a warning also to those who have yet to believe that the full bowl of wrath of God's judgment is coming. And there's a day where you and I will face him. And if you have to take that wrath on your own account, you will face that judgment on your own account. This is a call to believe. Verse 8, John then sees the sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And it remains so until the judgment was finished. This is that allusion then back to what happened to Moses at the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40. We see the same thing. And then we can ask ourselves, if the glory of the Lord and His presence is so overwhelming, how much more will it be in His judgment? Throughout the ages, God's judgment has served as a warning. It is a warning in our own day. It's a warning of what is to come. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And yet in this time, there is still time to repent. Our God is patient and He desires repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The image that John sees is one of completion and one of finality. That's what's coming. The end is coming. That's what he's describing. This is designed to offer hope to those who are in Asia Minor, to us today. Hope that the judge is coming and he will make everything right. God is sending his son to come again 
to return in power and judgment, to right all things in justice, and to make everything new. And when he returns, judgment will fall and the opportunity for mercy will be expired. So today is the day. Now is the moment to repent. Now is the moment to see, to understand, to admit, to agree, to believe that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has taken away our sins, that He will return in judgment, that He will redeem our every heartache. Come broken and weary, come battered and bruised, my Jesus makes all things new. Come lost and abandoned, come blown by the wind, He'll bring you back home again. Come frozen with shame, come burning with guilt, my Jesus, He loves you still. The world was good, the world has fallen, the world will be redeemed. So hold on to the promise, the stories are true, that Jesus makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we long for the day. As we think of the coming judgment, we are amazed at the great salvation that you have shown to us in Jesus. That that great wrath that is to fall in just judgment against our sin fell on him. And so would you cause our hearts to overflow with thankfulness that we are redeemed. That our sin has been paid for that our accounts have been cleared and we are now credited with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is yet to believe that they would see their need for a Savior and they would fall on your mercy. Would you call them to yourself? Would you breathe new life in them this moment? Lord, as we go out, I pray that we would be filled with hope that you are going to return that you will fill us with strength and courage to persevere, that we would not grow weary or give up. But Lord, I pray that you would also do in a work to stir in us a deep humility that is a result of our being saved, not by anything that we have done or any merit of our own, but simply by your mercy. That we would not look around this evil world that is falling apart and wag our fingers in our own judgment. We would trust you instead as judge. But you would move us to compassion in humility. To see the many opportunities around us. To speak of the hope that is within. That we would speak in love of the truth of the salvation of Christ. So do that work in us that we might be shining lights of the good, good message of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.